Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today's special guests are Elaine Chen from the New York Times and Jenna Curtis from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Elaine and Jenna are involved in this summer's birding project, gathering information on birds from now to September. They need our help. And I can't wait to learn more. Welcome, Elaine and Jenna. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for being here. I'm an avid reader of the New York Times, and I so appreciate the work of the Cornell Lab. So this feels like such a wonderful project. Tell us more about the bird count. How did it come about? Yeah, so um, this is Elaine. Uh, and I will say, I mean, I just love participatory science projects. It's just a really great way to bring people together and help them also learn at the same time, learn more about their environment. Um, and so for this project, which we hope people will sign up for at nytimes.com slash birds, um, we really need people to help out uh, because the summer tends to be a slower time for scientific bird observations. So we're hoping to change that this year. Um, and if people can, we'd love for them to try birding outside of their usual places too, like maybe the parking lot or outside of their work. And all of this is in the hopes of giving scientists a fuller picture of where birds are and where they're not. That's awesome. I, I feel like I'm carrying both of your organizations around in my head. Now, when I go birding, I'm like, the New York Times would want me to stop behind this big box store just to check right. it out. Cornell Labs needs me to go to the marsh. So right. um, thank you for joining me on my summer adventures. I so, so appreciate the company. What are you hoping to learn over the course of the summer? Well, summer is such an interesting time for birds. And this is Jenna here. There are so many cool behaviors to observe as birds are raising young, they're nesting, birds are fledging. So at just a very basic level, we're hoping to learn what birds are around you during the summer. What are they doing? And how are those species changing or how are the numbers changing as we transition from the breeding season in the northern hemisphere into fall? And at a higher level, we're trying to create what scientists call a benchmark, the best possible picture of which birds are around, where they occur, how many there are throughout these uh, months. So we need as many people from as many places as possible in order to do this. It's only through our collective efforts that we can really get this detailed snapshot of bird populations. And on another hand, we're also hoping to learn more about the birding community with opportunities for folks to share their personal birding stories and recollections and also maybe some cool things they've observed throughout the project. Is this a project that folks can participate in internationally as well? We have some listeners in Canada, Costa Rica, places like that, or is this America only? Yes, anyone can register for this project. And not only no matter where you are in the world, but also of any experience level as well, whether you're brand new to birding or you've been birding your whole life and are experienced with the birds around you, there are opportunities for everyone to contribute. Let's talk about that because some of our listeners are very new to the world of birding. They've just noticed there are birds in their yard. They're just getting started. How can a newbie birder get connected and help out? 
Yeah, I mean, so we're really excited to talk to your audience because it does include that range. But at least where we start out is that people are already birding enthusiasts. So they already are attuned to like how awesome and cool birds are. But maybe they haven't necessarily participated in a bird count before. So what we would hope that this project sort of might prompt people to give a try to is trying to count birds and submitting a checklist. Um, so this is uh, something that Cordell has great material on to try and sort of get you aware and understanding sort of the difference of maybe an individual bird identification versus doing a checklist. Um, but basically the idea is we want people to try and identify any of the birds that they can see or hear using Cornell's fantastic free app called eBird. Um, I myself still rely on Cornell's other app called Merlin um, because I am just a beginning birder. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll use Merlin to help me identify bird calls because I'm not that good at that. Um, and then I'll go to eBird and use that to sort of roughly approximate how many birds I think I'm hearing, and then also look around and, and identify the birds that I can see. So you can use both of them too. That's fine. It's okay if you can't identify every single bird call or song. But the hope is just trying to give a snapshot of every bird that you're hearing or seeing. And the other thing that we hope people might do is that uh, maybe you have some friends though who like aren't really tuned into how awesome birding is. And this project might be a good excuse to say like, hey, come with me, let's go do this. Um, because we also have prompts that are for people who are maybe new to birding and are not really sure if it's for them. And so we had our first one already about birding from your home. Um, and from now on, we'll have weekly ones to try and get people on the path to becoming more experienced birders and maybe contributing to science. It is one of the best things about birding, I think, is the bar to entry is so low. Go outside, look out your window. What do you see? And that's how it begins. Children can do it. You can do it with any level of ability. It's it's just such a lovely hobby that way. And um, I love that part of the project is to get more people involved in looking at and counting birds. So what about our expert birders, our really experienced birders? How can they help with this project? For the more experienced birders, we're uh, asking people to contribute to this project, as Elaine mentioned, through eBird. eBird is a platform that collects birding checklists, as well as additional information, like how much time you spent birding, how many birds you saw, how many people were with you, details that help an eBird checklist resemble a professional ornithological survey. And this aspect of eBird checklists means they can be used just like scientific data in analyses and conservation projects. And as Elaine mentioned earlier, July and August are some of the least eBirded months of the year. So by participating in this project, more experienced birders are helping to collect checklists during a period when our database has comparatively less information about birds overall. And this is a great opportunity for people who are experienced or familiar with the birds around them to get to know eBird better and how they can turn that everyday birding activity into a powerful uh, and valuable tool for conservation and science. And for people who are already experienced eBirding, the project has suggestions and opportunities for ways that you can increase the scientific impact of your birding activity by visiting places you may not have gone before or places that might not get visited as frequently over the summer. I had no idea that July and August were the lowest months for eBird. That's fascinating. Everyone's on vacation. Don't That's right. You should go on vacation to see more birds. That's the whole point. I mean, I think I also suspect when Cornell first told me that, I mean, I think what it is also is that for folks who are kind of hardcore eBirders, it's less interesting for them because they're like, I saw all these birds during spring migration. I'm bored now with the birds that I see. And so they don't contribute. But 
it's still valuable for science to know that those birds are still around or they're not around or even just knowing about, hey, sparrows are still here and they're, you know, they're in this parking lot here or they're hanging out on, by the tree outside my window. Like even just the common birds are still important to know about because as maybe your listeners are already aware, like many birds that we thought of as being common and would never go away have gone away. And even for sparrows and robins, they've been experiencing declines. And so it's still really important to know about where the common birds are too. That's a really, really interesting angle. And I think I've, you know, I've counted these house finches. I've seen them so many times, but it matters if it's nine or 12, it, you know, there's a difference there and you guys can't be in my backyard. I mean, you're invited, you can come, but you can't be in everyone's backyard. So the, the information that you're able to collect through a project like this, um, how will it be used in September and beyond? We're all sending you to our backyards. What are you going to do with that information? eBird is such a powerful resource for everyone who's looking to protect and conserve bird populations. Um, data being collected, collected by participants of this project can be used in such an incredible range of things, short-term things like the impacts of wildfire smoke in the east or unexpected weather patterns we may experience over the summer, and also long-term things like where birds are declining and by how much. Um, eBird data in particular gets used for things like high school science projects, computer programming courses, uh, to helping plan where wind farms are going to be built uh, or preventing airplane strikes from birds. Um, it's being used to understand the effectiveness of existing conservation areas and to plan new ones and propose them. So the possibilities of eBird data are endless. And by participating in this project, you are part of that tool, that resource for science. It's all entirely community powered. And so we're, some of the things we're excited to learn about this project, not just what birds are, uh, what birds people are seeing, but also just the potential of this data for discovery in the future. Mm. And Elaine, you mentioned that some birds that used to be common were noticing their numbers of decline. And this is one of the ways we pick up on those things. So uh, a question for both of you to answer, what is one of the biggest challenges you see facing birds today? And I want the, the Cornell Lab expert perspective and I want the newbie birder perspective. I think there's no denying that our world is changing at a rapid pace, and that can be really difficult for bird populations to keep up. There are so many factors that can change the landscape quite quickly, from cutting down a forest to building a suburb to uh, a sudden storm or an unexpected cold snap at a, uh, at a time of year where birds aren't expecting it. It can be really hard for birds to adapt to these sort of rapid changes in their environment. And I think the more we can understand and create that benchmark that I talked about right now, the more information we'll have to help protect birds and understand the potential impacts of these unexpected or rapid changes in their environment in the future. Hmm. Yeah, I will say I used to be, a, I was an urban studies major in, in college. And so I think what's really been illuminating, a little bit depressing, is so there's the pressures of climate change, um, but then there's also just the very immediate fact that wild spaces are disappearing um, because of agriculture, because of expansion in just the space that humans take up. And that is a real challenge then, because along with some of the uh, the, the pressures that climate change and all of the, the um, sort of shifts that go along with it, there's also the fact that now, like, 
the the rainforests are much smaller. There are fewer wetlands, like all of those things that make it very hard then for bird populations to try and adjust to the fact that now it's hotter or maybe their insects that they eat are like popping up earlier, but then also just they don't have as many places to, to rest during migration or to, to breed. Um, and so that was... Um, really helpful to understand how there are those two pressures at the same time and how they interact. And birds are so resilient, but there's a limit, right? They might be okay with two degrees of warmth, but three degrees is what pushes them to the edge. And it, it's so interesting how everything is so interconnected and building one house or diverting one road or, you know, one, one spring that comes earlier can be really have a huge impact on birding populations. Well, the theme of our podcast is birds and hope. So now that we've talked about some of the challenges, what's one thing that's giving you hope in the world of birding? Where are you seeing hope these days, big or small? Uh, I think for me, I'm I'm just constantly inspired by the global birding community. Through eBird, we hear so many stories and we get to experience the perspectives of so many different people through the birds they're seeing and the list that they're submitting, the photos they're sharing, that sort of thing. And so just getting to know the eBird community and how many young people, beginning birders are starting this journey gives me hope that we're going to have people who care about birds years into the future and not only understand uh, what birds are around them, but what they can do to help support those bird populations. Yeah, I think like as a newbie birder, the the passion of the community has been something that I'm always struck by every time we have any interaction with a reader, whether it's in our comments or in emails or uh, in person too. Just it's been amazing to learn and sort of slowly become part of the birding community that has global reach. I think the other thing that's been sort of heartening too in learning more about bird research is how much there's been a shift in thinking about where nature is. Going back again to sort of like my city sort of love. Um, I feel like before, and this is decades ago, I'm kind of dating myself, there was just a sense that like nature is out there. It's where the city stops. Um, and that's where you study wildlife. Wildlife only lives out there. I mean, it's both good and bad that no, actually that is not the only place that wildlife is. Wildlife is also in the cities too. And we really need to understand that. Um, and it's both because of birds not having other options, but also because like there are actually certain things about cities that actually make them very hospitable for certain types of birds too. So it's really nice to see that adjustment and not having it be such a dichotomy of like it's nature and then it's not nature and it's just based on like where trees are, that it's not as simplistic as that. Um, I think also what gives me hope is that this hopefully renewed interest in living in cities too, because that's also part of the answer. I mean, it's very hard that like people who love birds and love nature often want to then go live in a house that's surrounded by woods, not thinking about, you know, the roads that had to be constructed then and the green spaces that had to be taken down so that you could live in the woods. Um, So hopefully... Uh, now people are trying uh, are starting to see the appeal and the environmental benefits of living in cities. Mm, the hope of cities, I love it. That is not an angle that any guest has shared on the pod before. That's that's beautiful. Jenna, you've mentioned elsewhere that a dark-eyed junco was your spark bird. Elaine, what was the bird that first sparked your interest in birds? Yeah, so it's hard for me because it's like there wasn't one bird. I mean, there are a few birds that definitely bring feelings, evoke feelings for me. So the morning dove calls always bring me back to 
boring summers as a kid in Baltimore or the great blue heron makes me think about when I used to live in South Florida near the Everglades. But I'd say right now, the bird uh, that I'm sort of trying to learn more about, especially being a New Yorker, is the rock pigeon. Um, and I'd say uh, Rosemary Mosco, who is a nature cartoonist, published just an amazing guide on it about why pigeons are so cool. Uh, they were domesticated 5,000 years ago. We used to eat them a lot until chickens became domesticated. They made for life. I mean, there are just so many cool things that I've never thought about because I usually just sort of default to the they're the rats with wings um, perspective, but I'm trying to change that. I mean, also because this project is very much about don't take these common birds for granted. Um, there's so much history that is uh, associated with each of these birds. And also like there are things that are always precarious about their status um, with robins, with sparrows, with all of them. So I, I'm trying to learn more about these, these common birds. I love it. I love a rock pigeon nest that's like they didn't even try. But if it gets knocked down, they can build it again in three minutes because it's like four sticks. Look, I made a nest. I appreciate that. I'm a parent. I get it. You get tired. Um, okay, so hardest question of the podcast. Get ready. What is your current favorite bird? We have to just pick one. I mean, it's like picking a favorite child. I don't know. You're going to offend all the other <laughs> birds. So good luck. There's 10,000 to choose from. It's such a hard question. I think that consistently one of my favorite birds over the year, I don't know if I could say it's the favorite bird, but consistently one of my favorite birds are black-billed magpies. Hmm. I just, there's something about the sight of a black-billed magpie over the landscape that just always takes my breath away. It never fails to just stun me in a way that uh, it speaks to me at a, at a core level that I think is what draws a lot of people to birding. Elaine? Um, well, I'll say briefly, there were white-throated sparrows in New York City. I didn't realize that they don't hang out here the whole time. Um, and I really loved their call. Um, it's a little melancholy. I guess I kind of like melancholy bird calls because I also like the morning doves. Um, but yeah, the white-throated sparrow. It's very cute. Um, and, but otherwise, yeah, and I'm trying to learn more about the rock pigeons. Maybe the rock pigeons will become my favorites. But right now, I'd say uh, I recently had a sort of little crush on the white-throated sparrow. Those are two brilliant answers, and you can change them again tomorrow if you need to. There are a lot of birds, a lot of birds in the world. Um, well, Jenna, Elaine, thank you so much for the gift of your time. I'm going to link to all these resources in the show notes. So everyone who's listening, sign up for this awesome summer birding project. The Cornell Lab needs you. The New York Times has got your back. Is there anything I didn't ask you uh, that our listeners should know about this project, about how to get signed up, about how to start? about the awesomeness of both of you. You're both very awesome. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that what we would love is for people to make birding a habit. It's very helpful uh, for this project if they make it a habit. So as opposed to it just being something you do on the weekend or like something you travel far out to do, to just make it part of your day to day. And I know something you talk a lot about in this podcast is how birding can also be a way of taking a breather. So it's sort of nice, like, you're a little tired of that like barbecue, step away, do some birding. You need a breather outside from your office, go birding. <laughs> do it for a few minutes here and there. And I think that would be a wonderful thing that could be a lasting part of people's participation in this project is that they just do it from time to time. So we hope people will sign up at mytimes.com forward slash birds. Perfect. Anything to add to that, Jenna? No, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, and just a huge thanks to everyone who's contributing uh, their bird observations and taking part in this project and just appreciating birds and sharing their stories. It's 
it makes a difference. Well, thank you to both of you for pulling this together. Listeners, if you have not downloaded Merlin and eBird, they are from the Cornell Lab. They are both free. There's no in-app purchases. You can send your kids to play with your phone and it won't cost you anything. They are so well done and they keep tweaking and improving them all the time. So I cannot recommend them highly enough. I will link to them in the show notes on this episode as I do every episode. I'm a big believer in Merlin and eBird. Um, Jenna and Elaine, thank you so much for the gift of your time and this conversation. Thanks again. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Oh, your soul. Yes, it does.